This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the night sky. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. The Colorado Plateau is actually a really great place to see the night sky. We're dry climate. We also have very little particulate matter, even though sometimes it doesn't seem that way. We also have pretty stable low winds and not a lot of light pollution. So we have a lot of public lands around us without lights. And all of those things come together to form this perfect place for seeing the night sky. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Crystal White. Crystal is a naturalist and dark skies advocate here in Moab. With her, we talk about what darkness means to ecosystems and to people, and the different ways in which darkness is being threatened and protected. We begin our interview with Crystal explaining what we're seeing when we look up into the night sky. We are definitely way behind the times that are actually happening out there. It can take millions of light years to get to us, depending on what what thing you're looking at, whether it's a galaxy or a nebula or a star. We are definitely looking back in time. And so when we look up with our naked eye, like how far are we looking, very generally speaking? If you're looking with your naked eye, most of the things that you're going to see are stars. You might see some nebula. But most of what you're looking at is actually in the Milky Way galaxy, our home galaxy. So not too far out. You can see the Andromeda galaxy with your bare eyes if you know exactly where to look and a few other objects. But for the most part, you're looking in the Milky Way. How different is our ability to see into the sky from when before there were lights? It's changing really rapidly. I mean, think about when you were a kid. I remember when I was a child, I lived in Wyoming, and you you could look up and you could see colors in the Milky Way. Uh, I can't do that anymore from where I grew up. It's definitely changing, and it's one of those things that if we don't care, we could lose sight of the night sky, which just seems unreasonable and illogical to me. (laughs) You know, light kind of spread through the U.S. in the 1930s with the Electrification Act. We quickly fell in love with the idea of being able to see outside at night. Uh, It made a lot of sense. It seemed safer. It seemed like a great idea. You could see where you're going. You could stay up later. You could work longer into the night. However, we're quickly learning that there's a a dark side to the light, which is uh, the issue. What are some of those dark sides to having so much light on at night? The biggest thing to understand is for millions of years, life has adapted to this cycle of day and night. And that cycle includes light and dark patterns, and full moon and new moon. And so all life is adapted to that cycle, and and it's linked to our biorhythms to the point where it controls hormonal processes in our body. And by using blue and white light, which is a very, very fast energy light, it messes with that cycle. So we're running into problems with our melatonin production, 
us as humans. And melatonin is kind of crucial to your body because it's one of those things that controls your thermal regulation, your um, hormonal balance, your ability to sleep restfully. And during your time of sleep, that's when your cells heal themselves, that's when your body heals itself. And so it's really crucial to have that time. A little bit of exposure to blue or white light shuts down your melatonin production for the entire night. And it won't start again until the next day. And because of that, we're realizing that there's lots of health issues that are associated with that. Like there's more instances of obesity. There's uh, definitely been links to diabetes, links to prostate and breast cancer and even colon cancer, increase in problems with blood pressure, many, many mood disorders, many uh, sleep disorders. It's having a pretty astounding effect on us as humans. But that's not all. You know, it doesn't just affect humans. It also affects all the life that lives on the border of us. And sometimes that light can spread quite a ways. The impact that we're finding on a lot of the life forms that we have here in the Moab area would be, for example, toads under the influence of artificial light at night are calling less. And so their mating numbers are going down. Reproductive numbers, I should say, not mating numbers. So that's having an effect on amphibians, which are also getting hit by, you know, a million other things. And so this is one more thing, one more hit in the pot. And so that's that could be the tipping point. And that's kind of the thing to keep in mind, is every time you put another hit on a species, you're also pushing them to that tipping point. Can you talk about human relationship with the night sky? I mean, lights are really new to us. And so what has that relationship been like for most of life history? Most civilizations have a constellation story of some sort. And when you're looking through those stories, I, I feel like they often present some kind of moray for like the community. Like This is what you should do. And obviously, you know, there's fantastical stories up there as well that kind of inspire you and make you want to be big and strong like Hercules or and, and they take us places and, and it's a way to connect with each other and our universe beyond which to me is that's our origin so it makes sense that we want to stay connected to that explain to me what sky glow is how far is this light reaching and how are the different types of light affecting darkness there's definitely a lot to be said for the fixture that's used fully shielded fixture will direct your light downward and that's probably the least impactful light fixture you could have but in a lot of our cities we have acorn lights and they glow in all directions you're not only getting light down on the ground where you want it but you're getting it glaring in your eyes you're getting it glowing up into the sky you're getting it leaving your property boundaries and going into your neighbor's yard or their window. So it, it depends on the fixture that you use. Obviously, a fully shielded fixture is going to direct the light where you want it and not waste it. And if you think about where that energy comes from, we're not necessarily fully solar. So sometimes you also have to think about, okay, are we using fossil fuels to provide the energy for our home that's we're using this light? Well, then maybe you should shield it and direct it downward so you're not wasting that money and wasting that resource, which is not renewable. As far as the light color, it makes a huge difference. What scientists are finding out is that one color doesn't work for all life. 
oil rigs, offshore oil rigs, have been a huge impact. Birds crash into those seabirds all the time when they're migrating through. And they found if they switch the lights to green lights, it stops happening. The majority of species prefer red. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about the wavelength of a red light. It's very slow, very low energy. It matches more of like what a natural rhythm would be for us. Anything that's blue or white, again, has that very, very fast energy, fast wavelength, high energy. And so that light has more impact during the night. It's more like a daytime light. And no life has adapted to that. And it takes thousands to millions of years, depending on the species. For a lasting genetic change to take place, it takes even long. You know, it takes up to the millions. So we're asking life to change to something that's been around for like 200 years. It's, it's too fast. Nothing could adapt that quickly. With the light that we have on, say, in a city, let's say Grand Junction even, a city of that size... How far is that light reaching? Yeah, that's that's the part we're still trying to figure out is exactly what impact that has. And we're realizing that light reaches farther than we think. And even just like a tiny bit of sky glow spilling over into a natural environment can affect the life that lives there. I was speaking with a, a German researcher this winter, and uh, she had been studying perch, freshwater perch, and trying to figure out exactly what light level would affect basically sky glow level, which is any kind of light that's spilling up over the top of a city. How much of that would it take to affect this freshwater environment? And she told me she was shocked at just how low of a level of sky glow affected the perch. And she said, Crystal, it was barely above moonlight, which was shocking to me too. Because it seems like we would have a little higher tolerance as life, but no, not really. Anything that's beyond what's natural is too much. Does light pollution affect our ability to use science to study the outer world? Yes. In fact, it kind of goes back to Flagstaff, Arizona. They were the first city to become an international dark sky city, and there was a reason for that. They have Lowell Observatory, the observatory that found Pluto. And their skies were getting so light polluted that they were going to have to sell their telescope. And when the town found out that they were going to sell their telescope and close Lowell Observatory, they couldn't have that. So they changed their ways. They changed their fixtures. They changed their lights and became the first international dark sky city. It's incredible. It was a great citizen movement. And the observatory is still there, still functioning. One of the things that you're going to hear a lot about, and I think in the coming years, because there's a huge movement to figure it out, is how do we protect ourselves from asteroids? The telescopes that are used to track these near-Earth asteroids are all on Earth. So if our skies all became orange with light pollution, we would have no way to see that. In our area here in Colorado Plateau Desert, what kind of relationship do the animals that live here have with being active in the day versus being active in the night? Most animals have adapted to light and dark patterns of the natural moonlight, sunlight, all that. And so here it can be really quite impactful, and especially since the majority of species that live here are crepuscular or you know nocturnal. And so that has a huge impact. 
or rodent that may not come out during a full moon if there's artificial light trespassing out to where their burrow is and may think it's always a full moon. That can be pretty impactful to that rodent, so it's something to consider. I'm thinking about here and I'm thinking about kind of the increasing levels of dust that we have in this region. And I was wondering if what is in the air is affecting how much glow there is and how that might be related to light at night. Particulate matter does matter. It really does. Whether it's sand getting kicked up, you know, here in Moab, or whether it's pollution in a city, those particles do affect the night sky, especially visually. It turns more orange. That's your sky glow. Uh, when you look up into a, night, a dark night sky, clouds should appear black. They should never appear white or orange. You started talking about light at night became a, a popular thing and uh, the thing that keeps people safe. And I was wondering where we are with studies and reports and science about how important is light at night for keeping people safe from finding themselves in dark alleyways. It's it's interesting. There's been several cities that have done little sample studies of that where they've had a dark alley and they've had crime. So they light it up and it's really bright and crime actually increases. But it's more directed crime. It's not more random crime. It's like they can see what's in the car and they know they want it. There's no study that I've seen to date that actually proves that light equates to safety. In fact, I think the problem that we're finding more often is when you're talking about pedestrians crossing roads, that light glaring into the driver's eyes is a little more dangerous, actually, because it temporarily blinds you. It's the same for the pedestrian. They're temporarily blinded as they step in that crosswalk. And so, you know, with Moab becoming a little bit more of a night town, we're getting a lot more tourists. It's a concern that we have. But if you direct the light downward, as I was talking about before, then you can see where you're walking. You can see where you want to go. And your your eyes will actually adapt better when the color temperature is under 3000 Kelvin because it's what our eyes are meant to do at night. And so they adapt pretty quickly. How are these things studied? And what kind of tools do we have to, to think about and measure ambient light and human and animal adaptation to light levels? A lot of it's done, obviously, by biologists or medical researchers, I should say. And, you know, they're actually looking at the eyeball structure of an animal. A biologist out of California with Travis Longcord. He actually did some studies on reindeer, caribou up in Alaska, and their eyes should shift between seasons. In winter, they're, they're more blue, and in summer, they're more orange. And then as they cross between the two seasons, they're more green. And what he found was that in light-polluted areas, those eyes are actually staying green all year long. The, the, the adaptations that are happening are not true adaptations. They're just behavioral changes or physical changes to survive. And what kind of ways is light pollution itself measured? In the past, we were using more satellite imagery. But with white and blue LEDs, they don't pick up on your typical satellites anymore. You know, everybody's trying to figure out the best method 
to pick that up. And so far, the only thing we can figure out is a DSL camera. And so there's plans by NASA to attach some really high-quality DSL cameras to some satellites and send those up to monitor more of light pollution. And on the ground, I know that the National Park Service is doing quite a bit of on-the-ground photography, night sky photography, and it's pretty interesting. They're, they're able to take like a night sky photograph of any kind of light that's coming across the horizon. But of course, that's just horizon glow. And so it's not the best indicator of truly how far that's spreading out. It's not the complete picture. How dark are our skies here in Utah, in southeast Utah, particularly compared to other places? We have some incredibly dark night skies. There's a a Bortle scale that goes from 1 to 9. On that scale, one is like a night sky that has absolutely no artificial light touching it. Uh, Nine is your inner city where you might see 12 things in the night sky. One would be the moon and a couple planets and then some stars. Uh, We are at a class two when you get outside of Moab, outside of the city. That's incredible. And so we'd really, really, really like to keep it there. Because why spoil a great thing? The Colorado Plateau is actually a really great place to see the night sky uh, for many reasons. You know, not only are we, we're a class two, but there's, there's reasons for that. We're dry climate. We also have very little particulate matter, even though sometimes it doesn't seem that way. We also have pretty stable low winds and not a lot of light pollution. So we have a lot of public lands around us without lights. And all of those things come together to form this perfect place for seeing the night sky. The eastern U.S. is pretty much light polluted. And so to to have this resource, people are going to seek it out. It's like I said, it's a connection to our origins. So you want to be there. You want to see that. You want to remember. What organizations in our area are working on night sky and dark sky issues? A group called Moab Dark Skies. And that's uh, one that I helped found with uh, a couple friends that involved, at the time, Utah State Parks, the National Park Service, Friends of Arches and Canyonlands Parks. After a year of kind of putting into play like what we wanted to see, we had to grow it. So we invited a lot of business owners, guides, just people from all different walks of life in the Moab area. And so we've been working pretty intensely on getting some some movement and traction in Moab with the lighting codes. And we've had pretty good success so far, but we still have a little bit more to go. So people are aware that we have this amazing resource and that it could equate to a lot of tourism dollars. And so any kind of development that might threaten that, there there are definitely people watching for that and trying to stand up and protect our night skies, which is a beautiful thing. What kind of goals are people who are working on dark sky issues working towards? What are, What is the mm-hmm. vision for what our night sky could be like? We are hoping to make some interconnections between dark sky sites to create this big pathway. Uh, it would definitely help migratory species to perform at a, a normal level for themselves. But it would also help protect this huge swath of land and there's a lot of different organizations right now trying to make those connections 
trying to make a pathway that goes from Canada to Mexico. It's a mighty feat because that includes some pretty big cities, but it's not stopping anybody. It'll be interesting to see if it happens. What kind of things are, are being done in, in our area to maintain our dark skies? Uh, there's a lot of public education going on right now. We're trying to educate people as much as possible to kind of rethink the way we use light, to think about, do I really need this light here? Do I even use that light? If I don't, let's just take it out. If I do, when do I need it? And then just put it on a timer or put it on a motion sensor so that it only comes on when you really need it. And then also, like I said before, the fixture is crucial. Having that fully shielded fixture that directs light downward only. Think about the, the temperature of the bulb. You know, Try to keep it under 3,000 Kelvin. Obviously use as energy efficient as you can. All of those things will really have a huge impact on the, the wildlife in this area, the wildlife around our homes, as well as your neighbors and yourself. Because we have such dark skies here, is there any pushes to have this place be designated in any way or any kind of regulations put in place to maintain dark skies? Yes. Grand County just barely adopted a new outdoor lighting code and sign illumination code that actually has really wonderful dark sky conservation written into it. And Moab City's close. They're on the final phases of it. It'll be right in line with Grand County. And I know San Juan's doing a little bit of protection as well. And Moab did make the commitment to become an international dark sky city. What does that entail? A lot of it for a community is just having the support within the community that people realize that the night sky is something to protect because it's a rare thing. It also involves a lot of public education on why it's important to have dark sky conservation, why it's important to have really thoughtful lighting code, responsible lighting code. A while ago, Moab Dark Skies asked the city and the county if they would be an example because we felt like if the county and the city did it and they committed to change their lighting, then hopefully residents could see that and they could be the example and they could show everybody that it's, it really is a more responsible way to light your city. What got you interested in dark skies and the night sky? I think it was kind of a naturally evolving thing for me growing up in Wyoming and under dark skies. I grew up in a place called Star Valley. Go figure. Um, definitely spent a lot of nights in the summer underneath those starry skies. And so I always felt a connection to the night sky. Moved to working to, for Utah State Parks as a naturalist. Part of that was night sky education. That was a big push for me to learn more. I started out by helping Dead Horse Point become the first Utah State Park to be an international dark sky park. I've been working with the city, as, as I've told you. I want to remain connected to that night sky. I want to be inspired and hopefully it'll be around to inspire others. Like the younger generation, I hope that they look up at the night sky and they get inspired to ask questions like Einstein, like Hawking, and get out there and try to figure things out. And that they can still do that, that they still have the opportunity to do that. What do you enjoy kind of most about this work that you're doing with Dark Skies? I think the after effect going out and laying out in the desert 
and spending the night, a meteor shower night out there and just seeing so many meteors because it's so dark and just being blown away. Those are, those are the moments I cherish the most for sure. Yeah. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for this interview. It's been very, very cool to hear you talk about our amazing dark skies here in Moab. Thank you for asking me to come in. To listen to this interview with Crystal White again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.